Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Now more than ever, farmers are challenged with keeping valuable topsoil on fields, fostering soil that can retain water during periods of drought, and bringing back life to our soils so that they can provide for us long into the future. Healthy soils filter pollutants, store carbon, and infiltrate water, keeping our rivers and streams cleaner and healthier. The continual implementation of soil health practices is part of the regenerative agriculture, sometimes referred to as regen ag, that promotes farming in balance with what nature already does well. The regenerative agriculture movement is not necessarily new and follows many practices that indigenous communities have used for centuries. Common regenerative techniques that are part of the current movement include cover cropping, where crops are planted in the soil after a cash crop is harvested instead of leaving the soil bare, and no-till, which leaves the soil in place rather than plowing. These practices help maintain living roots in the soil, increase water infiltration, and improve future growth in these soils. In this episode of River Talks, we are joined by two leading soil health entrepreneurs and innovators, Mitchell Hora and Jeremiah Durbin. Together they share how we can scale up the implementation of regenerative agriculture by going on the offense, using big data and technology, and leaning into a future of farming that helps companies, consumers, and growers meet both their environmental and profit goals. All right, I'm Jeremiah Durbin. Uh, independent crop consultant. Uh, I own Sustainable Legacy Consulting. Uh, I've been doing it about six years. I'm also the uh, Tennessee Association of Conservation District Soil Health Specialist, and I'm part of the topsoil um, team of agronomists working with farmers in the regenerative process to get them there. And yeah, I'm Mitchell Hora. I'm seventh generation farmer in southeast Iowa. Um, we're outside of Washington, Iowa, is where we're located corn, soybeans, cereal, rye type of operation, Um, been implementing a lot of these regenerative systems for a long time on our own operation. Started Continuum Ag in 2015, and uh, today we're a soil health data intelligence company. We really focus on the Haney test, but helping farmers to holistically adopt regen practices. Uh, So we've got 24 employees and then working with a network of independent consultants, guys like Jeremiah and others who, you know, we all got to work together here to implement Regen Ag and make sure that the farmers know the right path, um, that their financials are being protected. We're protecting downside risk and ensuring that they're going to be profitable and uh, working with a lot of interesting groups uh, who are looking at bringing their farmers to the table too. Uh, So we're working with a lot of those organizations that uh, need a little assistance when it comes to helping their farmers implement Regen Ag. Awesome. Well, we're super excited to have both of you guys today. And I know you all work together a lot. So we're just excited to get a little bit of your insight. But let's start kind of with the basics. So when we talk about soil health, what exactly is that? Why is it important? And then from our perspective, how does that connect to water quality? 
Yeah, yeah. We each kind of, I don't know, Jeremiah and I both have a pretty similar approach on some of this stuff, but soil health to me is creating balance and it's creating balance in the chemical, physical and biological portions of the soil. Uh, you know, we've been looking at chemistry for a long time, but the biology is really what um, enables that next level and the biology is going to balance things out for us. And as we push on the biological lever, we don't have to drive as much on the chemistry lever. We don't have to deploy as much of our force into the system. Mother nature will find balance on her own. Um, so that's kind of how I define it. And then, you know, it's just with whether we're looking at tools and measuring and what the actual parameters are going to be, I don't really care that much. I've got tools that I use that helps me and helps my farmers um, and helps them make a better decision and helps the farmer to quantify where they're at and help them to make a decision on where they're going. Um, everybody can utilize their own parameters, however the heck they want to. I don't care. It's whatever it's going to bring value to your farmer. Um, and my definition of regen ag is that it's a continual implementation of the principles of soil health. And that's what it boils down to utilize whatever data tools you want, uh, but mimic nature, implement the principles, be creative and utilize data tools to help you along the journey. I guess for me, you know, when I look at soil health, first of all, look, look at the forest, look at the trees, you know, no, nobody feeds them. You know, it, it's like it was designed to take care of itself, a giant ecosystem. So when it comes to, to cropland, farmland, whatever the case may be, um, it's all about that balance. And Mitchell said, you know, it's just like a human body. You got to have water, you got to have nutrients, and you got to be able to break those down. And so when you look at soil, a lot of people just look at green grass or flowers or a crop. And, you know, they kind of have that iceberg effect. They don't really focus on the 90% they don't see. It's that 10% they see. And when it comes to soil health, there's so much microbiology and so much going on under the soil that we don't even comprehend. But at the end of the day, for so long, we have destroyed it, uh, pumping chlorides and, and sodiums and things into the soil, leaving them bare, not giving the soil health principles, and, and we've destroyed it. So we, we've got to bring that back. So for soil health, the, the function is the same as a human being. To me, it's all about the balance of, of, of infiltration and, and quality. Yeah, I think that balance and design, that's a really good way to kind of describe soil health and think about it in a way that, that makes sense. And, and so when we think about soil health, then how is that connected to water quality? You know, the first thing that I always think about is erosion, right? Losing that soil into a stream. But there's a lot more that kind of goes into how soil health is connected with the quality of streams and rivers as well. Yeah, to me, I, I always continue to preach on, especially as we're implementing soil health systems and implementing the principles and utilizing practices like no-till and cover crops. Um, yeah, we want to protect water quality, but these systems have to make the farmer money too. It's got to be the right business decision here as well. The water quality will come. Um, what I continue to hit on is that things like cover crops and no-till have been marketed and branded wrong. They've been marketed as defensive management tools to help us to protect water to defend against erosion, defend against poor water. And that's fine. That is true. But that cover crop, if it's going to pay the bills and be a, it has to be an offensive management tool, offensive decision. That cover crop to me as a farmer is my nutrient stabilizer. It's my herbicide program. It's my water management program. It's my moisture retention program. Um, it's my resiliency program and fending off frost and things like that. Lots of different offensive components that really drive directly to my bottom line. And that's what's huge. And because I'm using that as an offensive tool, the outcome just happens to be improve water quality, improve carbon footprint, whatever that may be. And those outcomes might be the thing that's paying the bill, 
the cost share programs and the sustainability initiatives. That's great. But that when we flip this switch here to really highlight how these practices are offensive management tools, just like your fertilizer or your, your pest management program, or your, you know, rigging up your planter, all offensive decisions, same type of thing here with planting that cover crop. It's my offensive decision and it's got to pay the bills. It's got to pay for itself uh, with or without any type of, of external funding to deploy that practice. So I agree with Mitchell. And I think two things I want to add that jumped in my brain was it's not usually jumping in my brain. It's really small, but when you look at erosion, we always, we always talk about the runoff. I think that we don't have a runoff problem. We have an infiltration problem. And for me, it's just doing that next right thing. And like Mitchell says, you got to be profitable to keep the lights on. So it pays the bills. That's what feeds us. So just like us, microbiology and the soil and soil health, they need the ability to infiltrate and cycle water. So by doing that next right thing, the end result is, is it passes through. We're able to store water, release, so we don't have erosion. We don't lose banks. Uh, we don't lose fertility. You know, we don't put that into our, our, our systems and our, our lakes and streams. But really, we're building resilience back in our soil and giving it back full control. So it, it just goes hand in hand, just doing that next right thing, feeding that soil health. It just, that continuum balance. That is a really good point. It's the infiltration that's really the problem. And this whole structure is just completely gone. Some of those balances that are in that system in the chemistry, physics, and bio, biologicals that are going to enable that soil structure to work effectively are completely jacked up. And I keep, you know, it's been conference time of the year for me. So I've been traveling all over the stinking country here recently. And I keep telling farmers, hey, it, the national infiltration rate on average across American farmland is only about a half of an inch rainfall per hour. And maybe that's wrong. You guys tell me, nobody's called me out on it yet. It's my understanding that it's about a half of an inch rainfall per hour is what we can. Well, I'm sure it's going to be, it's going to be context. I'm sure, you know, it's a big it's area. It's in the but... context for your farm, but on average, point being is on average, our water infiltration ain't good. And especially yeah. in comparison to we're getting rainfalls that are a heck of a lot heavier than a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. What we've seen on our farm in just a couple of years of using covers we can now infiltrate four inches of rainfall in less than five minutes. And uh, we can infiltrate an in, inch of rain in less than six seconds on our farm now. So we don't have, you know, we have that infiltration problem fixed. We can get that water in. We don't have erosion anymore. We don't have water going sideways on our farm. It all goes down. And because but, we're and focusing I, on building organic matter, each percent organic matter holds 26,000 gallons of water. So we're getting that water in our system utilizing it for short-term and long-term gains to make us more resilient. And through that process, I mean, Mitchell will tell you, it took time to get there. It didn't happen oh, yeah. overnight. And, you know, there's a lot of the key elements that go with that, you know, uh, you know, the support of peer groups and different things of, of people believing in you, you know, it's huge. That infiltration is, is huge on anything. And Mitchell will tell you how many years it took to get there. Yeah. But once you get it, I mean, you don't want to go back. And I think that's one problem we have an ag, you know, regenerative ag, it's not just no-till. It's not just one thing. It's, it's everything working in balance. I think the biggest thing with improving infiltration though, to your point there, like you can build it much quicker than what I think the common person would think. I really think you can make major strides even in year one, if you've got the no-till and especially to have the covers, you've got to have the living roots. Um, that's where, that's what's going to open up those channels and help to create the soil structure. Um, and you can really see major changes in the first couple of years. 
But the big thing with water infiltration and aggregate stability is you can screw it up and destroy it so quickly that any of that, any amount of work that you plug it, put into it, you can annihilate in one pass of screwing up that structure and, uh, and tearing up what you've built. And I think Mitchell agree. I mean, it, it all comes back to context and farmers understanding their baseline, totally. looking at nutrients, you know, looking at carbon nitrogen cycling and just all, all kinds of different things there. And, and that goes back to that key part of, of knowing what you got because you can build from it. And that there's not a, a multivitamin, there's not a easy button approach to this. So, you know, you got to be able to go into it and educate yourself on what you have, utilize your equipment, but then, okay, where do I need help in the other areas? I love what you said, uh, the, the, you know, being an offensive strategy, like that is such a good mind shift to have. And then the infiltration, not a runoff problem. You know, I think that even those very simple things are such a mind shift in terms of thinking about how to approach these. And even for, you know, I guess the everyday person, like, you know, I, I, I think of a runoff problem. That's kind of where my mind goes first. Right. But when you explain it to me as an infiltration problem, that makes sense, you know, and that sort of shifts it to also a very positive and proactive, like we're addressing infiltration, we're, which in turn means we're addressing runoff, but what we're really doing is addressing infiltration. And that, I think that mind shift is so key. So Jeremiah, you mentioned briefly kind of the, you know, importance of having peer groups and implementing these practices, having, you know, opportunities to educate and to support. And so I want to talk a little bit about how you all see um, these types of practices getting implemented more broad scale. So, you know, at the Cumberland River Compact, we recently launched our River Friendly Farms certification. And so that is based on a successful model from New Jersey that we've been able to kind of modify for the state. And so it, it's a voluntary certification that promotes um, farmers that are good stewards of soil and water. They do evaluation on, you know, soil health and erosion, nutrients, pest, um, and waterway protection. And so that program allows us to not necessarily be the technical experts, but to kind of highlight people who are really doing cool work and, um, you know, provide sort of transparency to consumers about what's going on with what types of, um, of, of growers and the, the practices that they're doing. And I know, um, Mitchell, in an article recently, you talked about transparency being the missing link between the farm and what sits at the prong of society's fork, which is a wonderful sentence, by the way. Um, and so I think that's something that we've been really thinking about with the River Friendly Farms program. So I just wanted to see if you guys want to talk a little bit more about sort of how that transparency kind of encourages the adoption of these practices and how having those peer groups also can help, um, you know, push these practices forward. Yeah. I can kind of hit on this because I've been thinking a lot about this here in the last just couple of days too, on some of the conferences and events and people I've been talking to, how we're going to get more farmers on this. Number one, it's got to boil down to this is the right business decision. And for those of us that are on the early adopter side of things, we're seeing it pay the bills in terms of reducing fertilizer, which we've cut ours by 45%, reducing pesticides, we've cut ours by 75%, reducing our need to replant. We haven't replanted in th more than three years now. Um, you know, and, and still driving big yields. We had our best soybean yields ever last year. We harvested big zero rye. Um, and our corn yields were, again, above average, even though a lot of other people around were really struggling last year. And um, so really seeing that we're getting the bill paid directly. To the bigger group here is what I'm thinking is really interesting now, and I'm kind of shifting my mindset on it too, that it's, we know that we're going to have to play in these marketplaces if you're going to sell into the market of the future. You're going to have to. And a lot of big farms are really catching on to that. There's so many of these companies 
uh, the supply chain organizations, food companies, banks, uh, the people where the money's at and where the consumers are at, they're all pledging to be net zero and to be sustainable and to do all these things. And right now you can continue to do what you're doing um, because they've got to have the supply. And uh, in the farmers uh, today, you can kind of continue to do what you need to do. They're not really differentiating. They don't know how to define your carbon footprint or your impact. They don't know how to plug you into their scope three type of uh, evaluations here. But as this goes forward, they're going to understand which of their customers and which folks in their supply chain are actually helping to contribute to the problem. And if you're not one of them, they might not take your grain. You might not have a market. You might not be able to play um, in the space. And um, now I don't know how quickly that's going to happen, but if these companies are saying we're going to be net neutral, they're going to have to figure out how to be net, net neutral. Um, we're, you know, net zero. And the agricultural supply chain today, ag is 12% of the U S carbon footprint. So what we're doing today is not going to work. Like I hope a lot of farmers realize that, that you can't just check a couple new boxes and now we're going to be good to go. It ain't going to fly like that. So the key thing here today, and what I'm seeing a lot of farmers catching on to is like, okay, I get it. All these companies are making these big claims and they're going to have to follow through or else their shareholders aren't going to find it, aren't going to do it either. And the big thing is it's the big money. It's their bankers and stuff too. That's forcing them to do it. The companies that we interact with as producers, the companies we interact with are being pushed by up the chain, up the ladder from them. And those guys are being pushed from up the ladder from them. And it's the top of the pyramid that's forcing this all the way down. And it's us at the bottom of the pyramid that are the ones that have to do a, a big chunk of the work. Everyone else has to do a lot of the work too. They have all got to, mitigate against their losses and stuff as well. But, um, but on the farm level is where we can really make meaningful change and layer the outcomes that we want to attain. So the key thing I think is going to be, again, showcasing in the short term, how can you improve your profitability and your annual resiliency by implementing these practices? And especially in a year like now where it's super high fertilizer prices, it's a great time to get started and to move into this. Um, you got to look at that cover crop as your offensive management tool so that it can actually pay the bills and then understand the data and the transparency that you're going to have to have to show that you are doing the right thing. So that when these companies say, Hey, yeah, we're going to roll out our new initiative to identify who's carbon neutral and, and who's not that you're at the top of the list saying, Hey, I I'm either good to go and here's my data or, Hey, I'm working on it. So work with me. Let's work together here because I'm already in a better position than other folks in your supply chain to enable you to meet your goal. And that's going to be massive for ensuring that your farm is well positioned for the future. We're going to have to have data. We're going to have to, we're going to have to show what we're doing, where we came from and what our real impact is now. Can't just have our baseline anymore. Jeremiah got to show progress on the baseline. No, I, I want to add to that. And I, maybe this is on the simple, simple mindset, uh, at least for me. You know, we're talking earlier about offenses and defense. You know, a lot of farmers, again, whether they got FOMO or JOMO, you know, that fear of missing out in the new market or, or the joy of missing it. I, I don't think the joy of missing out is going to be able to be here much longer. You know, it used to be that uh, until the pain to change was less than the pain to stay the same, nobody would change. Well, I think that's going to come in the impact of our pocketbooks, our profitability and staying in business, whether you're a farmer or whatever you're doing. And at the end of the day, 
we got to be offensive on that, which is our early adopters. And, I, and there's nothing against those people that haven't done it. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in this is what dad did or this is what granddad did. Well, it wasn't bad back then, but we know populations change, you know, so much more the production. But in that same token, the cool thing with regenerative farming is we're able to take the same amount and give more nutrient-dense crops. Not only are we good stewards of the land, good, you know, uh, quality stewards, but we're able to produce better and healthier food. And that's what we need to get. You know, we, we know that through just since 1996, when they come out with Roundup, we're almost two generations We've seen a lot more things come along with food quality. And a lot of that, even though back then it wasn't so much called cover cropping, there was a lot of unwanted weeds and things that grew. But even though they were there, they were helping for infiltration, helping keep from runoff. And I know they were a nuisance and we, we tilled the ground and things. But now that now that we know, now we know to do better. And I think it's all part of that, that regenerative cycle. Do you, do you feel like when you're, Mitchell, when you're talking about this sort of top-down pressure that is coming on to growers, you know, is this something that is changing at all scales of farming? Is it, is, you know, I think people hear about these really large scale, you know, agricultural institutions that, you know, how, are those being pushed as well? Or is it still sort of happening? Like Jeremiah, you were saying with the early adopters that might be a little bit smaller, maybe a little bit more nimble right now. Yeah, no, I definitely think the big one, the, the big farms, uh, the guys that are very much you know, leading the current way of doing things, uh, those farms are really starting to pay attention. Um, I just got back from the top producer conference uh, with Farm Journal down in Nashville, some of the, you know, biggest, best producers in the country and from around the world. And, you know, these guys are looking at, hey, we know that we're going to have to move this direction. We're going to have to go and get this figured out. Um, and they're looking at it saying, okay, hey, I got to do this because this is going to be the right thing for my business. And, uh, and I need to be in a position to be able to make change. Now it's really tough for those large farms to go a different route. And what I've really learned there is that for myself as a small farm, you know, we got 700 acres and my average customer is more so 1500 acres or so. It's been my main guy that I've worked with since starting my company. And when you're small scale like that, or very fairly normal scale is what I'd call it, very normal for my neck of the woods. When you're like that, you can have a 20 year of, you know, hundred acre test plot and kind of play around with it and test new stuff and tinker and, and uh, try new things. When you're big scale, you can't spend time dorking around or something new. You got way too much going on and you're in a system that if you throw out a whack, that system, it causes catastrophic, you know, a domino effect. So that's a big thing that I've learned with these larger operations is for them to jump in on something, they got to take a, their trial can't be 20 acres. Their trial's got to be 2,000 acres or more for some of these guys that they can't dork around with doing something small scale. If they're going to do it, they got to make sure that it's going to work and they got to jump in. And we've been talking, you know, uh, Jeremiah and I see a lot of farms that are really having success down the regen path. And my farm definitely being one of those. We're really getting it figured out. It's 100% paying the bills now. And we're in a much better spot than what we were years ago. But it's not all rainbows and butterflies. We've majorly screwed some things up. We've lost a lot of money. We have um, insects and stuff that come around once in a while. We've got other issues that pop up once in a while. It takes more management and it takes a better know-how um, to make sure that you're ready for plan B and C and D and much further on from there. And a lot of these big operations, we have to help them to systematically make some of these changes and to ensure that they're not going to have these catastrophic failures or 
uh, like we've had. And, uh, and I love uh, uh, Rick Clark calls them not failures, but outcomes that we don't expect. And, uh, and I love that. But these big operations, they know what the outcome's going to be. They've, they've got their numbers dialed in. They are running very successful businesses. They know what the outcome is going to be. They can't go and try some of these new things and get those outcomes that they don't expect. It's got to work effectively. It's got to stay within the projection uh, for it to really be able to work. So as it scales up and as we get to those later and later adopters, we've got to have systems here. We've got to have processes. We've got to be able to utilize big data, utilize machine learning and ensure that we're going to be um, enabling everybody to have success and to overcome those hiccups that a lot of us had to go through on our own. Um, but we were able to absorb that because we were doing a small scale. Well, and I think one thing to add to that, Mitchell, you know, on the on the early adopters is, is there's very few people that, that are not willing to share uh, that they want to share. You know, here's here's what we screwed up, man. Don't do this. You know, here, here's why or here's what we dealt with. And, I, and they used to always say if all the farmers came together, it would be a strong nation. It used to be. And I, I really see us heading back that way in this regenerative movement because guys are talking like, hey, I have this. You know, what, what can I do or, or, or what should I do next? And that's where we're able to use the tools to really understand what we have and, and move forward, like Mitchell was saying. To get to that carbon neutral, how do we get there? Carbon nitrogen neutral, you know, just looking at all that. You've mentioned a few times kind of the big data part and the technology part of agriculture. So could you talk a little bit more about what that looks like now and how that data and technology is playing into this movement? Yeah, and I don't want to just do a, a full-blown sales pitch, but obviously, I mean, this is the space that Jeremiah and I really are are deep into. So, I mean, both of us are, are you know, crop consultants. I'm, I'm an agronomist by training. Uh, and the taking that data to the farmers has been a way to give us some metrics and be able to say, hey, you know, here's these concepts, here's these principles, but here's some numbers we can go off of because farmers are used to seeing numbers, especially on soil. They're used to somebody telling them, here's your soil data and here's the fertilizer recommendation. Now, usually they don't understand what it means. They don't understand if they actually need that fertilizer or not. We're trying to educate, trying to show them, Hey, here's what this actually means. Um, So for me, the huge help for us has been with the Haney soil health test. And it's really what, um, what has enabled us to grow, to help farmers all over the world. And uh, because it's not only meeting the farmer where they're at and helping them to manage phosphorus and potassium and pH, um, calcium, magnesiums and micronutrients, but we can also look at nitrogen management, organic nutrient management, not just inorganic, water extractable carbon, the microbe food, and we can quantify biological activity that it's those, that biological activity that's going to drive the natural cycling and drive the natural system with a better understanding of that that's what enables us to dial back systematically on the synthetics over time and be able to create that balance as the microbial population gets more into balance, then we can adjust um, our chemical disturbance of the system because the system becomes more, more stabilized. In the future, it's all gonna be about the data, of course. We're gonna have to show the data, we're gonna have to be more transparent. I'm really excited for the big data machine learning kind of systems we're going to be able to have to be able to help farmers to be risk adverse, to understand what the risk is, understand what the financial reward is, and utilize big data to help us to reverse engineer the optimum path forward for each individual use case. Today, there's a lot of art to what we're doing. There's a lot of art. Every single farmer is different. 
We can't necessarily fully scale all this stuff. There's way too many nuances to this here today for data to do it on its own. But as we go further and further, we're gonna be able to further scale the science of agriculture with the data so that the farmers and their local uh, agronomist, their local consultant, those guys can optimize their art of ag. And we gotta be able to scale that because there's gonna be fewer and fewer farmers in the future. There's gonna be more and more technology, more automation, fewer farmers and bigger farms. So we're gonna to have to scale that art and it's scaling the science that's gonna enable that. Well, let's just face it. In the reality of today's job economy and people working and, and farmers gonna find help, uh, you know, there, there are those that wanna work, but at the end of the day, it's hard to find good help and with good actionable data, it, it, takes, it takes less moving physical pieces and parts and we're able to use that data to make more accurate decisions and keep sustainability, give better quality and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, you've, you've also talked several times about the profitability of all of this, right? And that being like number one on sort of the list. And, and you know, I've talked about how sometimes it takes a little bit to get there. Eventually you talked about losing money in some of these trials. So what types of, you know, right now when maybe we're in that early to mid adopter sort of phase, what types of incentives are there you know, financially to help offset maybe that loss of profitability to start to jumpstart some of these, this implementation. Yeah. I'll let Jeremiah speak to some of the, the um, different cost share programs and stuff like that. And, and uh, I can hit on some of where I'm seeing the things I'm seeing in development here too, but it's not only about profit, but for a lot of farmers that does have to be top of the list or it's, it's always, 99% of the time, it's got to be at least in the top three reasons. Because if the farm's not economically sustainable and goes belly up, none of this stuff is really going to work. So we've got to ensure that the farm is going to be profitable, that they're going to be more economically resilient. And yeah, for us, I mean, we've screwed a lot of things up and we've, you know, taken it in the shorts a couple of times and you figure it out and you learn and overcome. And, and luckily we do it small scale and, um, and that financial blow is mitigated because it was small scale. And then you learn and then you come out better on the other side. Um, but I don't know. I'm really interested in, you know, where companies are coming to the table to provide the financing for the, um, that transition period, which is really the tough time. So I'm very interested in, um, you know, a lot of these programs where farmers can work with their company of choice whether it be in the realm of a carbon market, of a sustainability initiative, of a water quality market, of a uh, direct to consumer, more transparent identity preserved supply chain, a niche market, whatever it may be. It's not just carbon. There's lots of other angles to this. But farmers are going to be able to work with those groups and go to battle together so that the farmer downside risk is protected. Those companies can provide financing and provide basically privatized cost share to assist and help to make the transition, to get new equipment, buy cover crop seed, whatever it may be. What I'm finding that's super important, and uh, and it's not just because I'm, I'm in the space, I'm just seeing that it's super important overall. That farmer, you can toss as much money as you want at them, but if they're not getting the right advice and if they're not getting the right help, no matter of dangling that carrot in front of them is gonna help. They're gonna take that money, they're gonna screw it up, and go one step forward and four steps back. And now we've lost them. And I really, really worry about that with these carbon programs, 
um, or with some of the different cost share programs coming out of, of the federal or state government or any of these initiatives. Because that's what happened to us too. We took the carrot in year one. We saw that. We took the you know 15 or 25 bucks or whatever it was at the time through the state of Iowa cost share. We didn't know what we were doing and we lost a hundred bucks an acre. We didn't have the right help. We didn't have the right support. We followed the one size fits all guidelines we thought we were, which really we were screwing those up too. And, uh, and we, we screwed a lot of things up and we lost a bunch of money. Now, what we've got to be able to do to overcome that is we needed to ask more questions and team with other folks that were around us and make sure that we did more of our homework, which at the time I was up at school, dad was back around the farm and going at this completely on his own. And we screwed a lot of things up. Um, now we don't, now we're able to overcome that, but through any of these initiatives that, you know, farmers go ahead and navigate different programs. There's lots of them out there in the private sector. I'll let Jeremiah talk on the public sector, lots of initiatives out there, team with the group that you feel confident in, but make sure that you understand the, the more holistic support that they're bringing to the table and make sure that you're being risk adverse, not just taking the shiny, you know, new dollar if you don't really know what you're doing. So to jump at that real quick, just on, on the personal side, not on the government side, you know, Mitchell, one cool thing, of course, Google's all our friend, but podcasts, tons of podcasts out there. And of course, you know, we, uh, so many can talk about, but there, there are people out there, there's help if you look for it. I mean, it's starting to be big and that's what's kind of cool about these peer groups. You know, I, I see people to come together doing these things that not even in the same states, but because they're doing it, they're starting to communicate and talk about things. But that's more of on the on the personal side. But on the government, you know, there's a lot of NRCS, USDA programs. Uh, but again, I can tell you with those programs, uh, the education part, you know, Mitchell and I are boots in the, in the field. We're, we're all over the place. We, we get to move and, and use a lot of data and understand, hear, hear horror stories. Um, I know being with Tennessee uh, for the last two years with TACD, I jumped in and, you know, a lot of those programs, I hate to say it, they, they go with that, that money approach, what Mitchell and his family did but they didn't have a clue what their carbon nitrogen rates were. They didn't have a clue what, you know, maybe what the relay cropping was, but how that was going to affect it, how it was going to inf affect infiltration, you know, grasses versus uh, legumes when you're planting those, what's that do to the soil for infiltration? Just so many things they didn't understand. And yeah, they jumped in, but they quickly turned off, you know, thankfully Mitchell and his family stuck with it, but uh, I've literally stepped into some mess messes that maybe the soil wasn't wrong, and maybe the tooling they had to administer to farm or plant, they didn't know what they were doing. And I think that's one thing with us being in the space now that we're able to reach more farmers through these education programs and at least cut out steps one through five to start to get, you know, what's your baseline, where are you at? And, and start to move the more advanced parts of, of, of your farm. You know, it used to be historically, everything was based on soil type. You know, how good that was going to be, how fertile it was going to be. But at the end of the day, we know that, at least for me, soil type doesn't mean diddly squat. Management practices is huge. Uh, how they're managing your farms, cover crops, things of that nature is where it's at. Now, are there, am I saying that all soils are created equal? Absolutely not. It'd be like me saying that all humans are created equal. They'll have different needs and different balances. But um, I think we'll come to a place where we'll start to level out in some areas because when you let biology go back to work, you know, biology doesn't go in straight lines. So as they all work together, they're kind of like us trying to figure this thing out to make things better for everyone. It all starts to work together. It's, it's that balanced approach. And yes, there's government help. Uh, you can get, but I can tell you this. If you do not know what you have or have a support group, when you go into it, you will not sustain 
and I'm sure Mitchell will agree with me on this, it takes at least three to five years of doing it the right way. And then you'll have that aha moment. And that aha moment is what changes everything. And that's where the positivity of, of like-minded people, we can make a huge change. Now, I would argue there though, you can do it on your own. It's just going to be tougher. Might as well work with people that are around you that have been there, done that. And I do think that we can see changes quicker than year three, year five. Now your point, Jeremiah is correct that that's when you really start cranking things up. But if you are, you know, listening to what your souls are trying to tell you, if you're paying attention, if you're out there really trying to learn and understand, and if you really want this to work, you can see those changes right away. And if you want it to work, you can really make it work. If you're going into these programs, taking new money, but going in there saying, oh, this is stupid, but hey, here's some new money. So I'm going to take it. Don't waste your time. Like, I don't want you to have a bad experience. Chasing a couple extra bucks is not good if, if it's going to throw other things out of whack and you could, um, Correct. You, know, you can end up going backwards. We don't want that. You got to understand uh, that there's going to be a lot of learning here, but you can learn extremely quickly and, uh, and absorb a lot of knowledge because there's so many folks uh, that have been here done that that we can learn from and that's 100 why i'm in the spot that i'm at that's why jeremiah's in the spot that he's at we've been able to absorb a lot of that info too we've had the school of hard knocks ourselves but it's because we're learning from all these other people that we're really able to be successful and to um be a catalyst to help other folks as well well and i want to add to that mitchell you know you talk about about lost money and, and all that you got a paid education and, and that's where you guys are willing to take your petty education. Maybe you didn't learn it in the college or wherever, but you're able to take that and share it with the next farmer. And that's, what's going to help move this needle and regenerative farming. You know, again, it's, it's going from the defense to the offense. It's all in that mindset. Yeah. I was going to come back to that offensive strategy because I think when we look at, you know, when the average person looks at agriculture and what's happening with environmental change. They're probably on the defense of how do we sort of defend, you know, environmental change from agriculture, but really what you all are, you know, these practices can be part of the offense. And so, you know, how do you all see, you know, these new practices and agriculture and in general and the community of people in this work really at the forefront of combating environmental change? Well, the biggest people that are leading all of this stuff right now are being, are disqualified from working in a lot of these programs. Uh, so that's not good. Like on our farm, yeah. we can't really participate in carbon markets. A lot of my customers, we can't participate in carbon markets because of the current definition of additionality. And you're bringing it up in a, a really good point in that, you know, right now, a lot of these groups are looking at, looking at it from the defensive lens, which is just how you laid it out. And it was a good light bulb moment for me that a lot of these groups are saying, Hey, we need to develop some carbon credits and we need to go on the defense against the practices that are screwing things up today, namely tillage and too much fertilization. So those guys that are putting on too much fertilizer and guys that are still doing tillage, we're going to help and defend against what they're doing. So we're going to give money to those guys to reduce tillage, add cover crop, reduce synthetic nitrogen. And we're going to pay them based on those practice changes, which is exactly what the markets are doing today. It's all defense. But what they should be doing is going on the offense to be more transparent, once again, as to, hey, here's how you can actually calculate your carbon footprint. Here's what actually moves the needle. Here's how you can better understand what your actual footprint is. We can't really measure it for the farm today. I get that. But 
we can be more transparent around what actually moves the needle and what actually contributes to really optimizing your bottom line output. And if we were to focus on that offensive metric of how many points can I score on the offense? If I knew how to score the points, if a farmer knew how to score, they would score. They'd go after it. It's the exact same thing on yield. American agriculture is the best in the world today because of farmer innovation towards scoring the most points and being on offense because we know how to keep score and it's yield bushels. We got contests, we got TV shows, we got all this stuff pushing on, uh, you know, driving the most yield because that's the scorecard today. And that's the, that's the end zone. And that's where you score the points. But if we're going to actually get these things to work, you've got to enable farmers to score points based on their actual contribution to these other problems, actual contribution to water quality, to your carbon output, whatever it may be. Cause when you allow them to do that, they're going to be competitive and they're going to be creative. And if they're rewarded for innovation and drive their financial impact because of that, that's what's going to enable this ecosystem to really flourish and to build and help us to actually contribute to the problems that these large corporates um, and the world as a whole wants to solve. I think Mitchell's spot on, but, but being a competitive person, and I know Mitchell is too, you know, we're always looking at, you know, we've had clients that, that have, have hit yield goals and, and, and won trophies based on yield and stuff. I can't wait for the day that comes that we see who puts out the least and still gets the most as far as, you know, we're able to, to be more regenerative, be, be more resilient, and that we, we've started to get that, that soil imbalance and to where, yeah, okay, used to be 300 bushels. Well, now we're able to do 200, whatever, 250 bushel corn, but I only put out 50 units to end or something, you know, something like that. Just totally turn the table. Uh, and, and that's what I like. And that's enabling others like we're trying to do, helping farmers enable themselves, make themselves more profitable, enabling the soil to do, do what was right and just continue to, to do full circle. But I, I think we're headed in that direction. And I know there's a lot of people that are behind this and it's just, you know, getting it all to come together. And I really, truly think it's not right uh, that for those that have been doing this that, that don't have that market yet. And really, those are the ones that we need to be looking up to because they took a huge risk and they uh, didn't necessarily know how to get there, but they've already done it. Uh, but they knew that we needed to change and they started to change and they've already built this, but yet they, they can't change their practices to fit in these markets. Well, that's completely, as, you know, asinine. That's backwards. We shouldn't be going at it this way. Another key thing here though, too, I'm not suggesting that we change the market stuff kind of the way that Jeremiah and I are talking to enable those farmers that are already doing it to get paid because they're not getting paid today and we're whining about not getting paid. That is not the case at all. I don't care about getting paid for carbon. I'm making money doing what I do um, because it works. What I worry about is that there's these companies that have these massive goals and they need all the tools in the toolbox to meet their goals. And today they can't work with me. I can't help them to attain their goals because of a couple of definitions because we copied and pasted too much from other markets and other sectors. And we need to rewrite some of the rules. That's what I worry about. Are those companies that when they figure this out, that they're skipping out and that they can't work with all of the solutions available, they're going to be torqued. And we need to make sure that they're able to work with everybody because they got some big goals. And if they could be going further and showcasing to their consumers and to their uh, shareholders today, 
that they're going further. Like that's what they want. And today there's a disconnect and they can't, they could be further ahead, but some of the rules are, are disallowing them to work uh, with folks that, that could contribute to helping them to attain their goal. Yeah. I love the way that the, the mind shift of all the different players in this, you know, have to happen. It's the consumers. It's the people who aren't necessarily part of this structure, but the consumer, you know, these bigger companies and then the growers themselves, I think there's so many different mind shifts that kind of can happen together to be on the offense and to, and to understand and, and make an impact. And I think you guys give a really um, hopeful and positive spin to this work too. I think that it can feel very uh, difficult when you, I mean, anytime you deal with environmental change as part of your life, it's hard to find those kind of positive, big movements. And I think this is, um, you know, yes, there's still work to be done, but it is exciting to see the, the progress that that is happening. Do you all have anything that you want to add that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I know we've talked a little bit about a lot of things and I'm sure we could keep talking, but I, I do just want to see if there's anything y'all want to add in. I got, I got some thoughts. Cause I'm really liking where this went on the offense versus defense thing. And I want to push it another step further. It's my understanding that um, CO2 and carbon actually is one of our most limiting factors to yield on a year to year basis. There's what, 400, 415 or so part per million CO2 in the atmosphere right now. That's a big part of the problem. Uh, there's other greenhouse gases too, but hitting on the CO2, uh, there's 450 part per million in the atmosphere and it's a limiting factor to grow on corn. So if we go on the offense today, knowing that more and more of that CO2 is not going to be readily available there in the future, I need to be on the offense to make sure that I'm getting that CO2 from the atmosphere and get it into my soil in the solid, liquid, and gaseous form, because that's going to make me more competitive in the future. Same thing on the water quality side on NPK, running out of nutrients in those mines, and it's not available right now. And what's going on with Russia and China, like the availability of these things is not going to be there. And right now, like you're going to be stuck in defense mode if you're not going on the offense now. So I'm going on the offense saying, I got a whole pile of nutrients in my soil right now. I'm going to go on the offense to control what I can actually can control because that's going to help me to be more profitable and everyone else is going to be screwed with the global markets and the way that they are right now. And uh, so in my farmers and folks that we are, are listening to this, we got to get on the offense to make sure that we are hedging against this global issue and, and where things are going here in the future. And you got to be on the offense to manage the natural fertility and natural system so that you're in position for, for the future that also ties into, I got to be in the offense that I don't want my nutrients going down the water because I got to make sure that they're going to still be here and make sure that they're being utilized to produce a crop. And, uh, and I don't want them going down the waterway anyway, because we're spending money on them. And especially in years like this, when that unit in action is now, you know, a dollar or even more than dollar a unit, when it used to be an average of 40 or, or so cents a unit, you know, that's a big money that could be leaving. Um, so I got to be on the offense to make sure that I'm maintaining those nutrients in my soil because they're going to be less and less available in the future. Uh, Mitchell, I, I want to add to that too. You know, as, as we're doing this, you know, you talk about what's in your soil and capture it and store it. I think we even are resilient to the fact that we're learning how to unlock what's in our soil. We're unlocking more of what we have. That, that in historical, we, we couldn't measure, we couldn't scale, but now we have the ability to scale and see what's actually in that soil. It's almost like getting an inheritance that gives you a small amount per month. Now, all of a sudden, I want to figure out how do I unlock so I can get more? 
Yeah. But then also replenish that account, and we're doing that. That's what the cover crops and, and, and the different things are coming in. So it's full circle. And back to the resilience of Mitchell was talking about, you know, these fertility issues. These are huge for farmers. If they had a way to understand their soil, what, what it needed, they wouldn't have to be so frightened or, or scared about what that bill's coming. And, you know, the mental aspect of this is huge, guys. As we're all taking this on, these farmers want to change, but they don't, they don't know how. And, and, you know, we don't want to talk about death and things like that. But, you know, with, with farmer, you know, suicides and things on the rise, these farmers just want help. They don't know where to go. And so we need to be able to just to channel and steer them and give them direction. So again, it's that complete cycle of, of everything from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both for your time today. This has been fascinating. And I think we, this going on the offense sort of mentality is something I think is exciting to take away from this conversation. Um, and just really appreciate the work that you all are doing, because I mean, it's, it's so valuable. We, like we've said multiple times, having all of these people in different, different sectors, focusing on different parts of this problem. That's the way that we can kind of move the needle forward in all, in all the ways that we can as individual people and individual organizations and all of that. So Thank you all so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. And yeah, we all got a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, we'll see what see where we're at down the path. Thanks to Jeremiah and Mitchell for joining us for this episode of River Talks. If you'd like to learn more about the resources mentioned in the podcast, visit our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash blog. You can also find more information about the Cumberland River Compact's River Friendly Farms program. This program recognizes farmers who are good stewards of land and water resources, educates the public about the importance of their efforts, and supports their conservation journey.